the first question we want to answer is, what is science? Science is a tool to better understand the natural world. Now, how does science work? How does it actually operate? How is it a tool to understand the natural world? Well, there are three steps in the scientific method, and they can be thought of as a triangle. First, we ask a question. We gather data or observations to answer the question. The observations then lead to an explanation, or also called a theory. And every good theory which describes the observations also makes a prediction. We then go back and test the prediction on the observations. If the prediction is borne out by the data and the observations, then that lends credence to the importance and validity of the theory. If it doesn't, then we have to go back and revise the theory or the explanation to explain the observations. Now, many people talk about whether scientists prove things. Well, scientists don't really prove things. Instead, we provide evidence in favor or against a particular prediction or theory. Mathematicians prove things. Their theorems and their ideas, they last sometimes for centuries. Scientists don't prove things. We provide evidence in favor of a particular uh, theory or explanation. So I have with me today Professor Stephen Kajura of the Department of Biology at Florida Atlantic University. And Professor Kajura studies sharks. And I'd like to begin by giving our listeners a sense of what his research is about in the, in the overall view. Steve? So uh, for the past nearly decade now, my lab has been studying the seasonal aggregations of these black-tipped sharks that come down to South Florida. And every winter, we have literally tens of thousands of these sharks right off our beaches. And what that does is it engages the public. It makes them want to know what's happening. Why are they here? Uh, where are they going? And those are the fundamental questions that uh, we are starting to examine and that we have been looking at uh, for a number of years now. And in particular, your most recent focus is on black-tipped sharks. Can you talk about that? Right. These black-tipped sharks are a medium-sized shark. They're maybe about 5'8 uh, or 5'9 um, in terms of total size. They come down here, and they are uh, unusual because when they spend the winters here, they are right up against the beach, literally a stone's throw off the beach. Uh, and that's what really engages people's attention. Um, when you go to the beach and you see a shark right there in you know, knee-deep water, suddenly you're very interested in why these sharks are here. And can you talk about, our listeners want to learn more about how you're observing the sharks and what kind of behavior you're actually able to, to, um, to view and see in the ocean. Sure. So we uh, started this project about nine years ago doing an aerial survey flying along the coast with a camera mounted out the window of the plane and looking at the numbers of sharks, uh, how many there are, when they're here, uh, where they are distributed along uh, the beach in South Florida. And from that, we're able to start to create some ideas about, ah, we see them only in these months. We see them only in these locations around these inlets, for example. And uh, from those sorts of initial observations, we're able to start creating some, uh, some hypotheses. I bet they're here because that's where the bait fish are. And um, now we're in the process of uh, testing a bunch of these hypotheses that we've created over the years. I see. So you have observations and you have, you're trying to come up with an explanation or hypothesis, as you, as you say, to explain the observations. Can you then talk about the next thing with the prediction? Is there a prediction that comes out of these theories or uh, hypotheses? Right. So from the uh, initial aerial survey work, for example, we saw that the sharks were only here in 
uh, February and March in the, in the greatest numbers. And then the numbers dropped precipitously when she got to April, hardly anything and pretty much no sharks after that. And so it wasn't simply a matter of these sharks being abundant all year round. There was a very clear seasonal peak. So we hypothesized that um, there must be some strong environmental driver in the winter. Uh, the most obvious thing would be temperature, but it's correlated with photo period, right? That the number of uh, minutes of daylight, shorter days in the winter. Um, and it's also correlated with uh, uh, prey abundance, for example. And so a bunch of these factors rolled in together, made it a little difficult to tease apart. Well, we started looking in particular at temperature. And we found that there's a very strong correlation between water temperature and peak abundance. And so we started to move beyond that now and say, if these sharks are here, when the temperature is around 21 to 25 Celsius, and they're not here at other times, they must have this narrow thermal tolerance. And so what we've done subsequently is instrument these sharks with transmitters, which will record the temperature. And now as these sharks are migrating all along the coast up to you know, the Carolinas in the summertime, are they staying at that same preferred temperature? And that's the, the, the phase that we're at right now. I see. And for our listeners, 21 to 25 Celsius is about 71 to 77 Fahrenheit. Yeah, I think that's about right. I'm sure the listeners also want to know more about um, the uh, devices you've placed on these sharks to track their location. When we talked earlier, that was a fascinating aspect of your research. Can you talk more about that? Sure. We use a couple of different devices. One is a, a simple acoustic pinger. And what this does is it sets out a little ping every second. It goes ping, ping, ping. And each of these pings is individually coded to the animal, so it's unique. And these transmitters will last anywhere from 6 to 10 years. So this is a long-life transmitter. And uh, we make a little tiny incision in the belly, uh, put the transmitter inside, suture them back up again, and sharks heal very quickly. Um, and then they're carrying this little individual coded pinger for uh, the better part of their lifetime. And that's one way that we're able to look at the movements of these sharks over uh, multiple years as they're migrating back and forth. And in any given time, how many sharks would have these uh, devices in them? Right. We have now instrumented uh, about 100 sharks with these acoustic transmitters. And uh, like I said, each is individually coded, and so we can tell each individual shark apart. And so when they're detected on one of the uh, underwater listening stations, we know shark number, you know, one, two, three, four was at this location on this date at this time, and it stayed for this number of minutes, for example. So we're able to to reconstruct the movements of these sharks by looking at when they're detected at the various listening stations all along the coast. One of the hallmarks of the scientific method is that, and science itself, is that our understanding of the natural world changes over time. The observations hopefully improve over time, the theories, explanations hopefully improve over time, and the predictions consequently improve as well. I'm interested to know if you've seen improvements in those three areas uh, in your research on, on sharks, and in particular, have the predictions improved at all from the theories that have been put forth in the past? It's been really interesting because these sharks have always been the subject of uh, recreational fishing for decades now. And uh, talking to some of the old-time fishermen, they will tell you, oh, yeah, the sharks are here when the, the mullet come down, for example. And so you have this sort of historic knowledge that uh, we can draw on. But as scientists, we have to be very careful that we are working on facts, not someone's opinion. 
And so when we've been looking carefully at the data, we see that maybe mullet numbers uh, peak in October, but the sharks don't peak until January, February. So there's, there's an offset. And so this idea that, that the sharks are following the prey is not really strongly supported, at least down here. Uh, it, te- it seems to be they're much more tightly tied to, to temperature, for example. And so I think this is a, a great example of looking at the, the scientific method as it is purely objective. You're not imposing your own uh, personal fishing experience, your own view on it. You're looking just at the numbers. And I think that's what makes it uh, so powerful. In the parlance of science, we say that we prefer numerical or data evidence as compared to anecdotal evidence, which uh, largely tends to be qualitative and, and cannot be used as easily uh, to make a, a theory and a, and, and a prediction. I'd also like to know, and I think our listeners would be interested in, um, the distance that these sharks actually cover during their uh, migration. Uh, you talked about that earlier as well when we were talking. Right. One of the uh, interesting aspects is looking back at what has been previously reported for these sharks. Um, In the late 1940s, there was a a paper by Bigelow and Schroeder who said that these black-tipped sharks migrate from Florida and spend the winters off uh, the Carolinas. And they get as far as about Cape Hatteras. Then they turn around and they come back down here in in the fall again. And that has been the common knowledge for the migratory range of these sharks, Florida to the Carolinas and back, for the past 70 years. What we found when we started instrumenting these sharks with transmitters is that these sharks are going well beyond that range. We are getting sharks uh, regularly off uh, Long Island, New York. And it's not an insignificant number. It's not just a rare stray that goes up there. Like over 25% of our sharks from South Florida are going all the way to Long Island and then we detect them back here again the next year. And so this has been a dramatic change or shift in the migratory range of these animals. Now they're moving you know, 50% farther north than they did just 70 years ago. And the interesting correlate is when we started looking at water temperature data from 70 years ago compared to now, we see that water temperature has increased by uh, over a full degree, about a degree and a half in that time. And so a degree and a half might not seem like much to you and I. You know, we're able to maintain our body temperatures the same, but uh, the sharks are very sensitive to these temperature ranges. And as the temperatures keep rising, these sharks are going to higher and higher latitudes. And that's why I think we're seeing them at much higher latitudes than we ever did uh, just just a few decades ago. So you have the two observations uh, that you're working with, the uh, observation that the sharks are swimming further north, the observation that the temperatures of the water is going up, and you correlate those to uh, predict that their migratory patterns are shifting north because of the, the increase in the temperature of the water. Yep, exactly. And there's, there's a corollary with that. Um, as the waters continue to get warmer uh, here as well, South Florida might become actually too warm for them. And they might not even be coming down this far in the winter times. They might reach their preferred temperature off uh, Fort Pierce or Vero Beach or something. It might not even come this far south. So we might see this this shift of the entire population northward to higher latitudes, but also avoiding the, the lowest latitudes of their range. So that's very interesting, Steve. I'd like to know what the future of your research holds. I presume you'll continue to do these observations and gather these data for the locations of these sharks. 
What are the big questions that, you, that you'll be trying to answer as you gather more and more data and the data set becomes richer and more populated? So some of the work that we're interested in doing now is taking advantage of these advances in telemetry technology. So with these satellite transmitters, for example, you're able to not only get location, but uh, temperature data, uh, environmental data that's transmitted in real time to an orbiting Argos satellite, for example. And so as a result, we're able to get instantaneous feedback on where these sharks are located and, uh, and what environmental conditions they're exposed to. In addition, some of the other data that we would very much like to collect are data on what these sharks are doing when they're here. Just getting location is one thing, but that, that doesn't tell you everything. Um, and with the satellites, they have to pop up to the surface. The fin needs to break the surface in order to talk to the satellite overhead. So what are the sharks doing when they're you know, underwater? There are new data loggers that are available now that we've just started to instrument these sharks with, and these will provide uh, a whole suite of data. Things like not only the temperature and the depth, but uh, you know, 3D acceleration. It's like your little, uh, like your Fitbit that keeps track of the number of steps you take. You know, we can track the number of tail beats the sharks are doing, for example. And as we get, you know, velocity and all these other uh, factors, we're able to see when we release the shark, it heads southeast for you know X number of minutes, and then it starts to head north, and then it heads to deeper water, or whatever. We're able to reconstruct the movements of these animals in uh, three dimensions and really get a, a much more detailed view, like a daily diary of what the animals are doing on a regular basis. And I think that's really gonna be uh, informative as we go forward and help us to develop better management plans for these, uh, these species. That is also fascinating. We've been talking to Professor Stephen Kajera of Florida Atlantic University's Department of Biology. Thank you very much for being with us today, Steve. My pleasure, thank you.